Friends, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 6 today. Uh, A number of years ago, our family used to attend a church that was very committed to expository preaching. So expository preaching is what we do here on Sunday mornings, which just means that instead of choosing a topic and then finding text to suit the topic, we choose a book of the Bible and we just go through the entire book of the Bible line by line, verse by verse, and study it. Well, the church that we were a part of was so committed to expository preaching that the pastor would bend for no holiday season. I mean, he would never break from the text to preach something that was relevant to what was happening. And so I distinctly remember we were going through the book of Genesis and we arrived at Mother's Day and the passage in Genesis for the day was Sodom and Gomorrah. And doggone it, our pastor preached on Sodom and Gomorrah to all the visiting moms out there and really laid down from Genesis. And I thought to myself when I heard that, I will never do something like that. If I ever become a pastor, I'm never going to do anything like that. Well, here we are, friends, on Father's Day, and our text for today centers around apostasy the possibility of renouncing or hating or abandoning Jesus and walking away and being lost forever. This is a very serious text, and we're going to read it, and by God's grace, we're going to understand it together. But I'm going to begin reading in chapter 6, verse 1. Hear now God's word. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt." For land that is drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and in the end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is a heavy text. I pray that you would give us honesty. I pray that you would give us grace. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes and our hearts to hear these things, to be warned of these things, and to be encouraged by these things. And we ask that you'll do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, when we read a portion of this kind of letter, when we hear this kind of situation, it's important to remind ourselves of the context. How is this letter originally being received? Who's receiving it and who was this originally written to? 
And we said at the beginning of preaching through the book of Hebrews that the unknown author is writing this letter to a house church of Jewish Christians. That's how we get the name Hebrews for the book. These are Jews who have converted, who have trusted in the Messiah, and they've become born again. But because of that conversion, they are experiencing persecution. They're suffering for their faith. Now, we're going to read later in this letter the kinds of things they're suffering. They've experienced abuse. They've experienced the loss of some of their property. Some of them have even been thrown into prison. But we know that up until the point of the writing of this letter, no one has shed blood. No one yet has been killed for their faith. And because of that, we think that this letter was written to a house church in Rome before the time of Nero's persecution, which will happen in the AD 60s. This is happening right before that, and the writer is getting them ready for the persecution that they're going to face. Now, because of this, this house church, this group of converts, is sorely tempted to revert back to Judaism. When they practiced Judaism, when they followed God, when they participated in synagogue, when they obeyed Torah, when they were Jews, they enjoyed relative peace and security. But now that they have put their faith in Jesus and claimed him as the cornerstone of their faith, of their Judaism, they are experiencing persecution. Why not go back to what they once were? Why not revert back to the Judaism that they once had? Now think about this for a moment. I wonder what you or I would do in a situation like this. I mean, if this was falling on you, if this circumstance was happening to you, what would you do? I've got a choice between serving and loving and pursuing the God that I have always known, that I've grown up knowing in relative peace and security, or I can now locate that exact same God into an executed Nazarene named Jesus who I've never met. And if I do that, if I choose the latter, it's going to cost me my job, my security, my peace, my family, and maybe even my life. What would I do in those circumstances? Now, I'd like to tell you today, removed from this situation, that I would think of myself as big and bold as a person who bows to no man. But the second I start saying that to you this morning, I remember Peter, the apostle Peter, in the upper room with Jesus, who at the Last Supper, after seeing Jesus' ministry for three years, he boldly says to Jesus, I am now ready to experience prison and death for you. And Jesus needs to embarrass Peter in front of his friends and say, no, you're not, Peter. You're not ready for either of those things. You will deny me and you will run away from me. We know a basic principle of water is that it always flows downhill. And apparently that's true for human hearts as well. We can't help but in the flesh look for the path of least resistance. We want safety and we want security and we will do funny things to find it. 
Now, that's the original context. That's the folks who are receiving this letter first, and we're reading this letter secondhand, and it's kind of eerie to be so far removed from this letter. I mean, you and I, in 21st century America, we enjoy relative peace and security compared to our Christian brothers who receive this letter and compared to many of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world. But there's still relevance for us today as secondhand readers. Even if you and I are not tempted to revert back to Judaism because of persecutions that are coming at us from the outside, every single one of us is tempted to leave Jesus in the face of sin or doubt. Every single one of us has entertained or dabbled in the idea of walking away from Jesus. And because of that, The subject of apostasy, renouncing, abandoning Jesus is relevant to every single one of us in this room, and it is a theme that is repeated again and again in the Bible to both Jewish and Gentile audiences. And so today, very briefly, I want us to lean in and listen to what the author has to say about apostasy. Look at verses 4 through 6, because the writer to the Hebrews, he's not going to pull any punches when he's speaking about this. He says very plainly, it is impossible to restore to repentance those who, quote, fall away, end quote, from Christ, since it would be as good as hating Jesus and trying to crucify him all over again. It's impossible to hate him, to renounce him, and to walk away from him. Now, honestly, I've always been afraid of a passage like Hebrews chapter 6 and a passage that we're going to read that's very like it, Hebrews chapter 10, because every time I would read this, especially as a young Christian, I thought he was talking about me, right? I thought that he was saying, there's a weak link in the chain in this room of Christianity here, and I know that some of you are actually going to turn and walk away from Jesus, and I assumed that that described me as the weakest person of faith in the room. I was terrified of a passage like this. Is it possible to lose my salvation? That was a question that often plagued me, and it's a question that I still think about today. And I've heard people pick up Hebrews chapter 6 and defend both answers to that question. Is it possible to lose my salvation? I've heard people draw from Hebrews 6 and say, yes, it is, or no, it isn't. I've heard people preach from this text and say, yes, it is possible based on this passage to lose our salvation. That's an ever-present danger for us as a Christian. We can be walking with Christ and we could do something, experience something in which we will be separated from Christ forever. That's a real and present danger. I've heard other people pick up Hebrews chapter 6 and make the exact opposite point. No. There's no way it is not possible for us to lose our salvation. This is a hypothetical situation. It's been written to Jewish Christians, and it simply does not apply to us, and it is not relevant to us or to our experience. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. I truly have not been satisfied with either of those answers spoken so cleanly, And I hope you don't think this is a cop-out, but I think the way to address the question, can I lose my salvation, is to submit to you two theological truths that we're going to unpack as we pass through this passage, and they are these. Number one, it is impossible to lose my salvation. 
Number one, it is impossible to lose my salvation. And number two, it is possible to hate Jesus and be lost forever. It's impossible to lose my salvation. It is possible to hate, to renounce, to repudiate, to turn my back on Jesus and be lost forever. Let's unpack both of these truths and then hold them in tension together. Number one, it's impossible to lose my salvation. Now, I want to say right off the bat that I think that's the most terrible wording in the world. We talk about losing our salvation, but that kind of sounds like losing my car keys. I don't know exactly what you're talking about. It sounds like I've kind of, I had my salvation and then I misplaced it. I went to bed saved and I woke up unsaved and I'm not exactly sure what happened in the meantime. So I just want to get rid of that phrasing, losing salvation. And I want to get down to the point, which is the question I think we're really asking, is it possible to forfeit my salvation? Is it possible to forfeit my salvation? Is it possible for me to be chosen by God to truly be converted? I am born again. I am filled with the Holy Spirit. I am adopted into God's family. And then after that happens, and after I've claimed Christ, and after my name has been written in the book of life, somewhere along the way, can I do something to forfeit that salvation? whether that's apathy, whether that's repeated disobedience, whether that's just general mediocrity in my Christian life, can I have at one point been saved and at another point now lose that salvation and have my name erased from the book of life and be lost forever? Can I forfeit my salvation? The answer to that question is emphatically no, absolutely not. It is not possible to lose or to forfeit my salvation. Now, wait a minute, you might say. You're reading this passage along with us, and you're saying, look at the description of the person in verses 4 through 6. This sounds an awful lot like a true born-again believer. He says this person has tasted the heavenly gift, they've shared in the Holy Spirit, they've tasted the word of God, and so on and so forth. It really sounds like the author is saying this is a born-again believer who is now lost forever. What do we make of that? And I would respond in two ways. First of all, I would say this passage is unclear. It does kind of sound like he's saying that, but there's some ambiguity here. He's using very unique descriptions to describe this person, and I can't tell if he's saying this is a person who has dabbled in these things. They've dabbled in the Holy Spirit. They've dabbled in tasting the word. They've dabbled in tasting the heavenly gift. I don't know if he's trying to say they've fully participated in those things, or he's just tasted and experienced from afar those things. And so the writer is not actually making the point that he's born again. He's just saying he's been around Christian things. There's another way to interpret this text, which takes the word enlightened to refer to baptism and tasted to refer to the Lord's Supper. Now, I wouldn't have read this and come up with that on my own, but we know that the church later used this kind of language, enlightened and tasted, to mean baptized and the Lord's Supper. And so there is a way in which the author is simply saying, this person was a part of a church community. They were baptized into this community. They came up every day, every week, every month. They took the Lord's Supper, and now they're gone forever. 
The point I'm making is it's unclear what the writer is saying. It's not a clear-cut, slam-dunk case that this is a born-again believer. We simply don't know. There's lack of clarity here. And second point is, in the face of that lack of clarity, there is so much clarity elsewhere in the Bible that says to us, it is impossible to forfeit our salvation. One of those verses that we could claim happens just a couple of chapters after this. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, we hear, For by a single offering he, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus, when he does this, when he offers himself, this is a once and done deal. Jesus perfects those who are being sanctified for all time. There's no question about this person's security because God finishes what he starts. He builds this unbreakable chain of salvation, which means that you and I are just not as important as we think we are. You and I can be so afraid that our sin or our shortcomings or our basic mediocrity threatens our status as being adopted into Jesus' family, but that gives us way too big a role. The Christian life is not a series of tryouts to see if we are worthy of God's grace. Let's answer that question right now. We are not worthy. We weren't worthy when we were converted. We're not worthy now that we're walking the Christian life. We won't be worthy when we appear before the throne of God to be received into his kingdom. We won't be worthy forever after when we worship the living God. We are not worthy and the Christian life is not a series of trials and tests to see if we are worthy. Instead, the Christian life, according to Hebrews chapter 2, is one massive display of the worthiness of Jesus. Jesus is the one who has made this perfect sacrifice, who for all time has sanctified us and will lead us into glory. You and I, we have a very small role in that. We're recipients of grace. He's drawn us. He's given us the gift of faith. He's given us the gift of sanctification. He will lead us to glory. It is all by the grace of God, and it is impossible for us to forfeit that grace. We can't give that up and be unadopted and unwritten into the book of life. We can't. That's not possible. Now, for some of us, we're going to hear that truth, and that's balm for a weary soul. We question that, we worry about that, we feel threatened that we will be undone in our salvation, and that is a sigh of relief to hear about our eternal security. If you are in Christ, he has claimed you, and you will not fall from his hand. But there are a few of us who will take that truth, and we will use that as a license or a permission to continue in the sin that we're doing. We've said no to Jesus in a certain area of our life. We've refused to repent of that. We are pursuing that at the expense of our relationship with him and this community with other believers. And when we hear eternal security, that can pacify us and say what you're doing is okay. And because of that, we need to hear this second truth. 
It's impossible to lose or forfeit my salvation. But number two, it is possible to hate Jesus, to renounce Jesus, and to be lost forever. The writer to the Hebrews, he's pleading with this group of believers against reverting back to Judaism, and he tells them in verse 6 that it would be like crucifying the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to open contempt. He goes on in verses 7 through 8 to say that these kind of people, they don't bear the good fruit of the Spirit, but instead they bear the thorns and thistles of a life committed to the flesh. Now, if we had time, it would be fascinating to trace this echo that's being said here. The life of a person who rejects Jesus, who renounces Jesus, bears all the scars and marks of Genesis chapter 3, a life that is cursed by God for sin. It's cursed, it bears thorns and thistles, and its end is death. All that spells It is possible for those of us who have said something about being a Christian to turn around and repudiate Jesus, reject Jesus, and to walk away from him forever. That is possible, and that's why it's repeated again and again throughout the Bible. I mean, think about the parable of the soils. Jesus tells the parable, the word of God, it comes out like seed. Some of it lands on a path that's immediately swept up, but some of it lands on thin soil, and some of it lands among thorns, and some of it lands on good soil. And when it first starts to grow, it's really hard to tell the difference between those three shoots. They all look identical to me until the one grows up into faith and maturity and bears fruit, and the other two are choked out and they die. It's possible to repudiate Jesus and be lost forever. I think about the story in Acts chapter 8 where Peter, he leads uh, a magician to Christ, the person who practiced sorcery, Simon the magician. He leads him to faith. Simon is baptized. He begins to participate in the church. He shows all the signs of faith until he sees Peter by the power of the Holy Spirit performing miracles. And Simon begins to think, I want this power. And he says to Peter, can I buy that from you? And Peter turns to Simon and says, I don't care what you look like before this moment. I tell you right now, you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. The path you're taking right now is the path of renouncing Jesus and walking away from him forever. It is possible to do this. It is possible to reject him. And so that leaves us in a position of trying to hold these two truths together, which feel like they can almost play off of each other, right? The second I want to be assured by the first, I'm warned by the second. And when I want to be warned by the first, I can be pacified by the second. And I don't know how to hold these two things in tension. And so I want us to look at a passage that does this really well. If you would, for a moment, just turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We preached through the pastoral epistles. We heard this preached, but I think it's really helpful to refer back to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And when you get there, you remember that Paul is writing a letter to Timothy. And when you see 2 Timothy 2 verses 11 through 13, you'll see that the, the typeface is set off, that the thing is indented because our Bibles are trying to show us that this wasn't something that Paul came up with. He's using a catechism. 
he's quoting something that had already been in circulation, which is fascinating because as early as Paul wrote this letter, the church had its own creed that was moving from church to church and being recited by the church. The same way we stand up and we quote the Apostles' Creed on Sunday morning, these churches in this day, they were quoting the thing that I'm about to read for us. And this is what they would say to one another when they gathered in worship. Paul says, the saying is trustworthy, 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. The church says this together. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And then listen to this. If we deny him he also will deny us. And then, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Isn't that fascinating to imagine whole families gathered together in the church reciting this to one another for their own benefit and the benefit of the person standing next to them? It is possible to deny Jesus. It is possible to walk out of this house church and to say you want nothing to do with Jesus and you will be lost forever. But in the same breath I tell you, it is impossible to forfeit your salvation based on your own faithlessness. If you are not performing, if you are not obeying, if you are not following, if you do not have the robust faith that your neighbor has, it is impossible for you to be lost, for you to forfeit your salvation, because that would be tantamount to Jesus denying himself. That can't possibly happen. In these churches, in Paul's day, they were quoting these things to one another. Now you take these two truths, you hold them together in Hebrews chapter 6, you hold them together in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and as you hold them in tension, this is the perennial problem you're going to run into. This is what I see all the time in my friendships in the church. This is what you've experienced as you think about these two things. The wrong person in the church inevitably is reading the wrong message. The wrong person picks up the wrong truth and they go and they run with it. I know deeply sensitive Christians who worry constantly that they have somehow inadvertently lost their salvation. They've done something, they've been a certain way, they snapped at their child, they didn't say Happy Father's Day, they did something, and they think that they have forfeited their salvation, and they're undone by that, and they don't have the joy of Christ. You meet that person over here, and your very next meeting is with another person who is absolutely brazen in their sin. They've chosen to do something. You've confronted them on that thing. They've said, I don't care what you say. This is what I'm going to do. You don't understand my circumstances. You don't understand what's unique about me. You don't understand that it's not as bad as you're making it out to be, and I'm going to continue to do this, and I don't want to hear another verse about it. And that same person thinks they are secure in Christ because someone taught them to quote John 3.16. The wrong person is hearing the wrong message and you wish that you could bring those two believers together and sit them down and plead with them to swap consciences. Would you just do that and share the concern that the other person has? But we can't do that. We can't force the switch in each other. 
And so the next best thing is that God would make us a church community of friends that presses into each other's lives and we play the right note of the gospel for each other. When we sit down with the first kind of person, the person who has professed faith, they've borne fruit and now they're undone by insecurity or anxiety. How can we, like the writer to the Hebrews does in verse 9, say, Beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Christ has you. You're in his hands. He is in the process of sanctifying you and bringing you to glory. I want you to have the assurance of your salvation. That's the note of the gospel we play. And on the other hand, when we sit down with the latter saint, the one who has claimed something about Christianity and the one who has dived headlong into sin or they're walking away from this church community and they want nothing to do with it, how can we play the note of the gospel that says, watch out? I'm telling you, watch out. You do not want to be on this road because it leads to your destruction. We encourage and we warn, we encourage and we warn, and you need to hear that both notes are notes of grace. It is the grace of God to grab a believer and to tell them that they can be assured of their salvation. And it is an absolute grace from God to grab a person while they're still breathing and say, watch out of where you're going because it leads to destruction. Both are grace. Both are the gospel. Both call believers deeper and further in to this kind of Christ who is our high priest. And in doing so, God will make his believers persevere unto the end. Let's pray together. Jesus, I can hardly think of a better prayer than this, that you will make us endure to the end. There are some of us on the fringe who are worried about our salvation, who don't want to trust what your word says, that you build this unbreakable chain that will lead us to glory. And I pray that you would give us eyes of faith to see and believe and be encouraged. And there's some of us here this morning who are dabbling in the other fringe, who are walking and entertaining a sin that we want no one to touch or to hear. There are some of us who are drifting away from this church community and this profession of faith. And I pray that you would play this note for us to be warned and to be wary and to come back to you who is the author of our salvation. Would you do that for both of us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.